Hello, listeners. This week, our guest, Michelle, will help us explore beautiful France, a dream getaway, and a must-visit for anyone looking for a new adventure. Start planning today and take that trip you've always wanted to. Every adventure gives you the opportunity to experience something new. Traveling will pay tenfold what you pay to actually do it. This is Inspire Beyond Borders, and we're here to help you see the world. Hey, Michelle, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Jim, how are you doing today? I'm fantastic. Excited to talk about France with Michelle. That's right. And we're going to take a nice little trip through Vichy and Paris. Let's start with the fact that you're a French teacher. You speak French fluently. For someone who is visiting France or Paris who may not speak French, what type of advice would you give them for navigating or speaking to locals? That's a really great question. And I think it's true no matter where you're traveling. If you're traveling to a country that speaks a language other than English, the big thing in France, and they get a bad rap, is that they are like really rude. But I think if you're not a French speaker, the most important thing to do is still just use the little words that most of us know and or can learn really quickly. Like if you go into a store, greet the shopkeeper and say bonjour. You can say merci. Really, those two words are really all you need to kind of open up and maybe crack that tough outer exterior of the French citizen, because a lot of people think that they're rude, but you don't want somebody just running up to you and speaking a different language, assuming you speak it. So you can really break the ice just by saying hello in French. And in terms of navigating, if you're in large cities, you're going to find English speakers everywhere. And in more rural areas, you might not, but definitely the younger group, um, anyone who's like 30 and under, they most likely speak English. So you can easily find your way around. I had planned a trip to Paris this past year and was nervous about the rudeness that you had just brought up. And it was one of the things that made me nervous about traveling to France. And I got to be honest with you, that didn't happen at all. I felt very welcome there. It was one of my favorite cities that I visited during my trip. And honestly, it was very relieving. I loved Paris there. So it's funny that you bring that up. Just minor little words that can really open up an entire culture to you. Yeah. One of my favorite stories is I was in a taxi. And like you said, I'm a French teacher. I speak French. And it's not my first language. But, you know, I have a very strong mastery of it. And I was speaking to the taxi driver and he corrected me. And at first I was really surprised and I thought, wow, that's incredibly rude. Who are you to correct me? Like, I don't know you. But if you come into it with that attitude, you're looking at it wrong. They generally think that they're being helpful. They obviously have a mastery of it. They're trying to help you perfect your French or work on your French and give you a little bit of knowledge. So I think it's also your perception of, you know, your attitude of how you go in. So don't be surprised if they do maybe correct your accent. And if you do know a little bit of French and you're in Paris and you want to try it, also don't be surprised if they answer you in English. It could just be that it's going to be faster for them to get through the transaction or the conversation if they just answer you in English, no matter how strongly you may have wanted to try to practice your French. Out of practicality purposes, they might just answer you in English. Now, just a quick question about the taxi. 
was it an issue of formal versus their everyday language? Like, did you speak the formally correct way and he said it in a more normal way, a more normal every day to day way or? No, if I remember correctly, it was more just like I conjugated a verb wrong, thinking of like a verb tense. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it's something of the equivalent of saying like, I would go, I said I could go or something. And I just remember him like pointing it out to me. But sometimes when I go there, I swear, I'm like, I think I speak French because they speak so much slang that sometimes I don't even understand it. And I'm like, I thought I was a French teacher. What's happening? <laughs> this was a trip through school and students were coming with you. How did that affect your planning process and your end of this? It looks like a travel agent did a lot of the work for you guys. Is that true? This was interesting. I had never traveled with students before. I had traveled as a student when I was in high school. So I actually used the same travel agency that my own high school teacher had used because I knew that they were familiar with organizing a school trip to France. Um, I wasn't sure how many kids I was going to take and I wasn't sure how complicated it was going to be. In the end, we were a small group. It was just three kids and myself. But the travel agency was really um, key in helping with important things like booking the flights. I wanted to make sure, obviously, that we could all get on the same flight. I didn't want to have to worry about someone booking the wrong one or it filling up before they could book. So that was definitely important. So they were helpful with that. And then also some things that I didn't think of. Anytime I've ever traveled to Paris or through France, I never go on official tours. And they brought up how beneficial it could be, especially for the kids, to have a tour guide for some of the key locations. So that was really helpful. And they had things like insurance, because I didn't think about things like that, traveling with minors out of the country, making sure that I had insurance. So they included that with the trip. So things like that were really great. And I knew if I got into any type of a pickle that I could call the travel agency and that they would help kind of sort things out. How many times have you been to France, just out of curiosity? I was trying to think of that before. I think I've been to Paris about eight or nine times at this point. And I always fly in and out of Paris when I'm there. So you get the cheapest flights flying in and out of Paris. And then I usually take the train to wherever I'm going after that. So there's definitely been some of my trips to Paris are just a day when, you know, when I land and I have some time before I take a train. And other ones, I stay there for a couple of days with other people. But I think it's probably like eight or nine times at this point. Awesome. Jumping back, were there any downfalls to using the travel agent or you found it entirely beneficial because this was a student trip? I think for the purposes of a student trip, it was beneficial. As I said, I've never used one when I travel personally, but I do think that in terms of booking the flight, and I forgot to mention booking our hotel, they get discounted rates and they see rates that we don't even see like when you use different travel sites. So I think in that regard, I was able to definitely save money for the kids because they had to pay for themselves to travel. So definitely for this type of trip, it was ideal. I don't know if for myself, if I would then start using a travel agency, but it was definitely key for this trip. I've spoken with EF tour people. Is that something similar to this agency that you used? Was that the agency you used? No, this agency was just like a local mom and pop agency here in my hometown. I didn't go through EF tours or there's a couple other school kind right. of tour groups. Those tend to be more just tourism based. And part of my trip that I really wanted to include and that I felt strongly about was having my students take French classes and language classes. And I really wanted to make my own agenda and my own itinerary at my own pace. So I didn't go through any of those companies. So it was just a local mom and pop travel agency that booked everything for me. Were these higher level students that you went with? Yes. Well, it was over the summer. They had just finished university one going into university too. So they were juniors going into senior year. Was this similar to the EF tours in that 
you as the teacher did not have to pay to go on this trip? Or was it something where you did have to pay because there were three students and it wasn't through one of those companies? Yeah, no, I had to pay. If I had more kids that were going, I definitely could have divided the cost of my own tickets across their bills. But with only three kids going... It would have been astronomical for them to also foot my bill. So I it, I just looked at it as like another vacation for myself. So I paid for myself and for all my things too. You mentioned to- various tours and having tour guides. Did that booking take place all before you left? Or were there things that you booked while you were there or both? The bookings for the tours were booked in advance by the travel agent. So I had kind of come up with an itinerary based on what I knew would kind of work not to jump but like when I plan for being in Paris I do a lot of walking and I warned the kids about that like wear your most comfortable shoes I just always feel that walking is the best way to get oriented in a city and to really see things that you might not see if you're underground on a subway or if you're in a taxi so I tend to plan where all of the locations that you're going to are like along the way walking throughout the day So I had already had that itinerary and I showed it to the travel agent and then they were able to then coordinate on the ground in Paris with two different agencies for like our tour of Versailles and the driving tour when we first got to Paris off the train. So that stuff was done in advance. I had also booked in advance our tickets for the Louvre. I bought those online in advance, anything that could kind of save time. But There were other things that were more fly by the seat of our pants that we bought tickets to once we were there. Did you use any skip the line tickets or did you just buy general tickets? They weren't skip the line tickets. I did buy just tickets in advance for the Louvre, but my itinerary was to get us there first thing in the morning. So we actually didn't really have an issue with standing online. We were maybe online for 15, 20 minutes max. And the Louvre can be overwhelming. It's definitely a location where, yes, you could spend almost a literal eternity and never see the same thing, but it becomes too overwhelming. So I figured first thing in the morning when you're fresh, uh, when you're excited for your day, go there first, try to hit some hot spots, look for the big must-sees inside the museum, and then break for lunch and get out there and get some fresh air because it can instantly become very overwhelming. In our first part of the episode, our guest will take us to Vichy, France, an area full of history and a language institute for anyone interested in learning French. So the beginning of your trip, you're taking these students to Vichy, France. Can you give a little detail on what that is exactly? Of course. So Vichy is a smaller city. That's in central France, and most people, if you Google it or if you're familiar with it, you know it from your social studies classes and learning about the Vichy regime and World War II in France. So it has this really deep history. Fortunately, they're not on the right side of history because the Vichy regime collaborated with the Nazis during World War II. But because of that, it's so rich in history. As you walk around the whole city, you know, you see monuments, memorials, plaques. Everything happened in a certain location around the city. And what's nice about it, from the standpoint of maybe someone who's apprehensive to travel to larger cities, is that it's small enough that you can just meander and you can't really get lost. And from a chaperone perspective of having students there, I felt very comfortable just letting them roam free because there wasn't really anywhere where they could go that they would get lost. And what brought us there in the first place is that there's a large language institute. 
So also if you're someone who is maybe inspired to travel because of a love of language or because you've always wanted to learn, there's a really great language institute there that welcomes people from all over the world of all different age groups and all different learning levels, those who have never spoken French before in their life and those who just want to kind of master or perfect their skills, which makes it an ideal location because all of the locals that are there, you get this more authentic, smaller city, large town type of vibe, but they're used to tourists and they're really great at helping you practice your French, where in Paris, somebody might just answer you in English. They're going to take the time to have that maybe longer, painful, drawn out conversation and let you practice your French. What are some of the classes and excursions available at this language institute that you took these students to? So they were able to take a bunch of different classes. Some were strictly language-based, but they also had ones on French culture as well. And then in the afternoons, each day, there were like different activities. So sometimes it was a movie night at the school itself. Other things included hiking some volcanoes, because little known fact, or maybe lesser known fact, central France has um, some extinct volcanoes. So we were able to hike a volcano. They had fun, like mini golf, zip lining type of activities. And then they also had ones that brought students to the city of Lyon. The larger city of Lyon is not that far. And we were able to go there for the afternoon and walk around that city. So they had all different types of things from just fun activities to tours or more cultural things. And then smaller things like movie nights or trivia and games and and meet and greets because there's people from all over the world. Now, on your itinerary, it says that the students, and I'm assuming yourself, stayed with host families. How was that compared to staying, let's say, in a normal hotel? I was very pleasantly surprised that my students said that their favorite part of this trip was being in Vichy and staying with their host families. And they said that should have been two weeks and not just one week. It gives you such a great experience and it can be really scary. There's nothing scarier than staying with strangers. And there's nothing scarier than staying with strangers who speak a language that maybe you don't or that you don't speak well. But they were able to have such a great experience and they became really good friends with their host parents or even some of them had host siblings. And what's nice is these host parents, they're used to hosting people, again, from all over the world with ranging abilities in French. So they can definitely make you feel very comfortable in a place where you're now a stranger. I definitely think it's the best way to get an authentic experience and push yourself out of a comfort zone. I mean, if you want to see culture straight up, you're going to get it there. You're going to see, here's what the French eat for breakfast. Here's what their houses look like. This is what the architecture looks like. Surprise, surprise. The French have pink toilet paper. You'll find that out because you'll be in the bathroom and see pink toilet paper. Like you get all these little details that you won't see staying at a hotel. You mentioned you were able to take a trip down to Lyon. How does Lyon compare to Paris? Lyon and Paris are very different. Of course, size Paris is much larger. Paris and and the southern city of Marseille are more comparable in size. Lyon is a smaller city. And they also have a very different vibe because of that. Paris is a very metropolitan city in the sense that it has a financial district. There are skyscrapers in Paris. They're like right outside proper city. But it's a true city. The city of Lyon, while being a city in name, has that smaller vibe. I always compare it to like how New York City feels compared to Boston. Both are cities, but Boston just feels more quaint. It feels smaller. It feels more walkable. And that's kind of how the city of Lyon is when you compare it to Paris. So it's a more provincial town. (laughs) 
<laughs> yes. One might make me fly in the air there. Who knows? Was that something available to you only because it was a school-based trip? Or is that something people can consider doing when they travel? That's definitely something that people can consider doing when they travel. This school, they have you know, host family that they work with year after year. But you can definitely use different apps and websites in order to kind of find different families. Of course, there's always just couch surfing, which you can couch surf anywhere in the world. But I would definitely say that it's worth looking into different like exchange websites or host family websites. And if you can try that experience, even if it's only for part of your trip, to give it a try and to push yourself into something different. Is it something you've ever done before, not on a school trip? No, it's always been on a school trip. Like when I studied abroad, I stayed with a family. I studied in Vichy myself when I received a grant from the French government in 2015. And I studied at that school and I stayed with a host family, which is how it first kind of came across my radar. So mine have always been through the conjunction of like while I was studying in France. Apart from that, I tend to stay in Airbnbs or small hotels when I travel in France. Did you end up going on any of the hikes up these volcanoes that you spoke about? I did, and I almost died. There was, unfortunately, when I was in France, what's called la canicule, a heat wave. And it was 100 degrees. I remember it being 40 degrees Celsius, which I suck at math. So I remember having to look up and see what that was in Fahrenheit. Uh, the answer is hot. It's hot. So we had a hike up one of those volcanoes, La Puy de Dome, that day. And I have a very triumphant picture of me at the end with just like a tomato red face holding a thumbs up. But it was definitely worth it because you get such a cool view of a very rural type of area. And you can see a couple other extinct volcanoes like off in the distance. So it was definitely worth it, but really, really hot. What would you say was your best experience on this trip while at the Language Institute? This is going to sound really selfish, but for me as a chaperone, the kids were in classes in the morning and I was not. So I had most of the morning and the afternoon to do whatever I wanted to do. So I got to do my favorite things in France, which include but are not limited to eating a lot of pastries, drinking <laughs> a lot of coffee, relaxing reading a good book in French. And what's nice about Vichy is Vichy used to be a spa town and they have a lot of natural wells that have healing properties. People believe in the water. So there's all like these spas and there's like a nice little riverfront where you can sit right alongside it. And there's a couple cafes and bars. So that's what I was doing while the kids were taking classes. So for me, that was my vacation part because I knew when we got to Paris, I had to put on like my tour guide hat and I would be in full chaperone mode at that time. Vichy was my relax. The kids were with host families. They were in classes. I check in with them a little bit. But for me, that was the vacation part. That sounds wonderful. I love a good spa town and a great spa day. <laughs> I wish I could get one soon, but apparently we're going to be on lockdown forever. Is there anything during this time in Vichy that we haven't asked you about that you would like to share with us? Not in particular, I just think, and it's not even specific to Vichy, but just trying to explore smaller towns in any country that you travel to, even if it's not France, but they have a lot to offer. And I think those are like those hidden gems that people always talk about when you search online for a place to go. There's always some article or news site that says, oh, France is hidden gems. And there are these small towns 
and they're beautiful and they all have this really, really deep history. You know, you'll see buildings that were from the 13th century. And I definitely think those are always worth finding and kind of searching out. Next, Michelle leaves for the world-renowned city of Paris. We speak about Notre Dame and reminisce of its beauty before the fire. Okay, so you leave Vichy, it looks like you went on a train, and you arrive in Paris. What is the first thing you do once you get to Paris? Once we arrived in Paris, it was pouring rain, and I have three very tired children, and I had to get them from the train station to our hotel. Ideally, I had it planned to walk, but now it's pouring rain and they look like they want to murder me with their eyes. So we had to Uber, which was the first time I had ever Ubered in France. I took a taxi like in other parts of France, more kind of rural areas, but I'd never taken a taxi and I had never Ubered. So we had to Uber. And even though there was only three of us with our suitcases, we needed two Ubers. So then it was the dividing up of the children and who goes by themselves and how do I make sure they get to the hotel? But the first thing was just to get them into the hotel, get them to check in, drop their bags, because I knew we were going to have a driving tour to help orient them within the city and kind of get them their feet wet and navigate them a little bit. It sounds like if you just walked in the rain, that would have gotten their feet wet plenty. (laughs) I didn't even see that one coming. That was good. (laughs) Before we get started, I have one burning question that if I don't ask first, it's going to be on my mind the whole time. And then the rest of this, you're just going to tell that I'm out of it. Did you meet any dancing, singing candlesticks? (laughs) You know what? I did not. Unfortunately, I don't know where Lumiere was the whole time I was there. So Um, it's not like they have a Times Square where you can go get lumiere a picture with him and pay him a dollar like in time like you know when they have all the characters at times square unfortunately no but they do have mimes mimes are a real thing you will see a mime i think people think that that's like just a stereotype but you'll see mimes walking through and you know people doing caricatures are like the big thing there's always someone that wants to like pull you to the side and do your caricature for you but sadly no um no times square like second rate elmo or lumiere walking around Okay. Aaron's mad because he thinks we're not including that, but we're absolutely including that because you went with the mimes. So thank you. You're a pretty close friend of ours and you, one of your many talents is baking. And I'm curious, in all of your time in France, have you ever taken any classes regarding baking or learned how to do any of your baking while in France? That it would be the dream. Um, Sadly, I've not taken any classes while I was there, but that's definitely been on my radar. I have been very inspired by things that I've eaten there, both baking, but also cuisine, like dinners. And there's certain things that I just have an affinity for that I always try to recreate. And of course, they're never quite the same. It's like that damn good French butter that you just can't find here. But I would love to. That's definitely on my list. I think that would be like a fun opportunity as well. I know there's like wine tours throughout France and of course, like all the cheese you can eat. But sign me up for some baked goods and I'm in. All right. Maybe 10 times the charm. So day one in Paris, you get to your hotel, everybody gets checked in and everything, all the luggage is dropped off, you change into dry clothes maybe, and you're going on what you said was a car tour. It's a private tour of Paris. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah, so this was something that I remember doing even when I was in high school, and I think it's because, I, like I said earlier, I used the same travel agency that my own high school teacher had used, and it was something that 
hadn't really crossed my mind until the travel agent brought it up again about getting the kids kind of pumped, giving them that first taste of, of Paris. You know they're going to be a little tired, so you're not making them walk yet. And they kind of get to see a couple different neighborhoods. And that first site where they got to see the Eiffel Tower from the car, they were like, it was amazing to see it through their eyes because I feel like I got a little jaded, which I know sounds like such a terrible thing to say, but I felt like I had seen it so many times that it lost a little bit of that specialness. So yeah, it was a private tour. Our tour guide picked us up at our hotel. It was like a larger type of a van that we were all in and with big windows so that you could get good shots. And, and I mean, this man knew what he was doing. He knew like where to pull over to get like the best shots of the Eiffel Tower for the kids and of the Arc de Triomphe so they could get like great pictures from the van. And it really got them excited for the days to come when we were going to be in Paris. I have to tell you that when I first got to Paris, the first thing, as soon as I got into the taxi, I was looking for the Eiffel Tower. And I had that eye-opening, like, wow, there it is for the first time. And it was one of the most spectacular things because it really does tower over the city and you can see it as you're driving and, and you're just looking around constantly for it. And then once you see it, you're like, Oh my God. And it's, it's like here, I'm here, I'm in Paris. That's like the first time you really realize it, or at least it was for me. Yeah. It's definitely that symbol that gives you that I've arrived type of feeling like it, we're here. It's actually Paris. We're in France. Even though they had been in France the whole week before, I don't think it really sank in for them until they saw that Eiffel Tower and they were like, we're really here, it's happening. And, you know, they all dream of going to Paris. And nowadays with social media, it's like an Instagram lover's dream uh, to be able to take your selfie in front of it. So they were just over the moon, excited to see the Eiffel Tower and really be in Paris. You mentioned a bunch of the highlights, like especially just seeing that, that first view of or glimpse of the Eiffel Tower. But was there anything on this tour that you saw that was new that you hadn't seen before in your many trips? I feel like even when I go to some of the same places, it still has not been like I've been there, done that type of thing. The prime example of that is the Louvre. It's impossible to feel been there, done that because there's just so much to see. But on this trip, and it wasn't through the tour guide, it was something that I had added in after reading a suggestion somewhere else or Maybe someone had told me, I honestly don't remember, but I went to the Pantheon, which I had seen from a distance before, but never actually gone to. And it was one of those moments where I was like, why have I never done this before? Because it was such a great experience to see the Pantheon and to go inside of it. Awesome. So we'll talk a little bit about the Pantheon in a few minutes. So unfortunately, Notre Dame caught on fire last year and... You guys were able to get in there before that fire had happened. Were you able to get into cathedral or was that not part of the trip? We did. The kids that were able to go in the cathedral, I went in as well. It's, again, one of my favorite places. And definitely, for other reasons, during a heat wave, it's great because those old cathedrals stay nice and cool with that cold stone. <laughs> so it was nice to go in there to take a break from the heat. But the moment you go inside Notre Dame, you just have this really nice feeling of calm. It can be really loud, and there's the hustle and bustle of tourists right outside of it and of gypsies. But as soon as you go in, you just kind of get this feeling of calm. It's the quietness in there. Everyone is whispering. And it's a nice break from a very busy day. Is that quietness the most impressive part of this cathedral? Or like, what would you say the most impressive thing is? I think that quietness adds to it. 
it's almost like everyone is in awe and that's also why it's quiet besides it being a church. But I definitely think the impressiveness of Notre Dame is just the construction itself. I mean, there's these beautiful stained glass windows all throughout it. But I mean, you look at the altar, you look at all these ornate details, even from the famous gargoyles from, you know, the Disney movie. There's all these small details throughout the whole church that, you know, if you were to see them all, it would blow your mind and it would take you years to just notice all these little details. So I think just the construction, which sadly, a lot of it was destroyed. Luckily, a lot of it remained, but with the roof caving in, I'd be so scared and sad to see what it looks like inside because there's just so much that I don't think could even be replaced if they wanted to. I don't know this. Was the famous rose window destroyed in the fire or was that preserved? It was preserved, actually. Oh, I'm not okay. really sure what happened, but the rose window was preserved. Some of the other stained glass windows were blown out from the fire, but the rose window was preserved, which in itself is beautiful. All of the stained glass is beautiful, but the rose window is really just... It's amazing to think that people created it. I think that's the whole thing with the whole cathedral and all these details. You think somebody made this, an artisan made this, and it blows your mind. All right. And Aaron, I want it noted, I did not bring up the Hunchback of Notre Dame. She did. <laughs> yes. And there's one interesting thing about Notre Dame Cathedral that I did that I had never done before. We didn't go up Notre Dame Cathedral because the line for that is so long. And they have a thing where you can do a skip the line and text, but I mean, it was around the block. So someone that works for the cathedral had suggested that in the same square as the cathedral, kind of like across from the front doors, there's like a crypt and you can go down in there. And in the crypt, they have the foundation from some original buildings in Paris. And you can see some of the first construction and the things that were built to help support the cathedral. And they have parts of Roman ruins because Paris was founded by the Romans. And that was something I had never done before. And again, on a hot day, it was really nice to go underground in a crypt. But it had a lot of interesting artifacts. So if you're really into history, too, that was an interesting thing to see about the, the origins of this Roman city that eventually becomes the great city of Paris. Was there any eeriness to being in a crypt or was that not really there? Not really there because it wasn't a crypt like the catacombs. There were no dead people. So <laughs> well, it didn't have like that type of sense of eeriness. It was just cool to see all of these archaeological digs and to start to see the foundations of old streets. And they had artifacts like old Roman coins and parts of vases and things. So that was pretty neat. You know, that's a very different perspective. One of Aaron's favorite things to hear about is whatever the highest point is in the city that we're talking about, because he always loves to ask our guests, what was it like being at that at the top of that tower, seeing the whole city? And this is kind of the opposite of that, just going down underground and seeing the origins of the city underneath everything. Yeah, I'd never done it. And it just, it was really cool. It did give you that perspective. Like you said, usually everyone wants to go up top of the Eiffel Tower and get that view, which you can't beat that view. But it is cool to then have this counterbalance and see the origin of the city, how the city was formed. And some people might know this if they really researched Paris before they go, but the island that Notre Dame is on in the middle of the Seine is called Ile de la Cité because that was Paris. That whole little island was Paris. And then over time, it just kept expanding and growing and growing. So you really are at the birthplace of Paris. In our final segment... We visit the Louvre, 
one of the greatest museums in the world, and we also explored the Tuileries Garden. Day one ends. You probably get a good night's sleep because everyone's tired from traveling from Vichy to Paris and then exploring Paris. You start day two with the Louvre. How did that go? As I said earlier, the goal is get to the Louvre as early as you can. A couple key things. You either need to go there first thing in the morning or on Wednesday nights, the Louvre is open late until it's either 9.30 or 10. So it's either go early or go late, but definitely don't go in the middle of the day because you will be waiting online forever. So goal one was get there ASAP. And as I said, I prefer to walk everywhere when possible. So I had kind of set up the day as we were going to eat breakfast at the hotel and start off on our travels and take a kind of a nice leisurely walk, but still get there in time to be there right at nine o'clock. That way we could get in first thing. And, and that worked out for us. We lucked out. Like I said, we only waited in line like 15 to 20 minutes. Now, the Louvre, as you've mentioned, is enormous. And you can see something new, even if you spend hours upon hours in it. How did you find navigating the Louvre? Was it a bit easier for you? Because obviously you've been there before and perhaps you speak French. Not perhaps you speak French. Clearly you speak French. But my experience from going there, it can be pretty overwhelming. I think the Louvre is overwhelming no matter how much you speak. And what also makes it somewhat confusing is they move around exhibits. Like the Mona Lisa is never in the same spot. So, of course, my students, you know, that's one of the big must-sees if you're going to the Louvre. And they were asking me where it was. And I didn't really know the answer because they do move it around to different rooms just to change up, like, traffic flow and, and patterns through the museum. And no matter how many times I go and no matter how many times I get a map, I get lost all the time in the, in the Louvre. It's just way too large. I don't think, I don't think I'll ever really remember how to get around the Louvre. One of my favorite things though, to seek out in the Louvre is the Egyptian artifacts. I just love Egypt. They have replica uh, pyramids, they have mummies, and I always like beeline it for Egypt. And again, I can never find it. And (laughs) I always stumble upon it by chance, but that's definitely my favorite. And then they have a nice little courtyard with like a sculpture garden. And I like to go in there and get like a lot, of, a lot of nice bright light in there. But it's a confusing and overwhelming museum. So I think if you go in with that mentality and just know that you're going to be maybe a little frustrated and you're probably going to get lost, just roll with it. it. It's hard to really go in there with a game plan short of like, I'm going to seek out the Mona Lisa and then Rome. It's kind of hard to have a set itinerary unless you really, really map it out. Were there any paintings or sculptures or artifacts that you specifically wanted to see beside the Mona Lisa? One of my other favorite wings and areas is they have the large format paintings. So these are the paintings that take up literal walls. And one of my favorites, well, there's two, but one of my favorites is Liberty Guiding the People. So if you're you're a Coldplay fan, you know it from the cover of their albums. But that's one of those large format paintings that just takes up, you know, a whole wall. They also have the coronation of Napoleon, again, large format and lots of cool like battle scenes and things. But I think those are just beyond impressive. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, the Mona Lisa leaves a lot to be desired. She's very tiny. <laughs> you don't realize it until you see her in person. It's a very small painting behind plexiglass so there's a glare you can't get that close to it i don't know i've seen it online that was enough for me i would rather check out some of these really impressive large paintings where you just you feel like 
you feel so miniature standing next to them. It's it's mind blowing. Is it just major pictures like the Mona Lisa that get moved around or do they just move everything around all the time? As far as I know, it's really just the Mona Lisa that they've moved around. I don't think they move around too much else. Like Venus de Milo and like Winged Victory are large statues. They stay put with where they are. But they do move around I, the Mona Lisa. There might be a couple others, but I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I did see the Mona Lisa last year. And I have to tell you, the way you explained it was perfect. Because there's a line, a massive line to go see it in the one room that it's by itself. Everything is white and it's the only thing in there. And then there's two security guards who let you in and then you walk up to the roped off area and they give you maybe 10 seconds to take it all in and then they move you on so it it is overwhelming in the sense of getting to it but then it's kind of underwhelming when you finally see it yeah i remember that moment of seeing it and just going huh that's it okay (laughs) like it wasn't this great thing that you thought it would be. I mean, it's great because it's impressive, but it is not what you think it's going to be. So you might want to lower your expectations a tiny bit and then choose a lot of other things to go see. It is one of the world's most famous paintings. Is there any part of you that's like, okay, wow, this is the real thing right in front of me. That's the impressive part of it. Not okay. The painting is impressive. Like, Starry Night is another famous painting, and it's one of my favorites. I've seen the picture a hundred billion times. Seeing it in New York City when it was there was awe-inspiring because this is the real one right in front of me. Like, that was a little bit more awe-inspiring than necessarily seeing the picture. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I think that's part of it. I mean, it's like saying, I went to France, but I didn't go to Paris. Like, how can you go to France and not visit Paris? It's like, how can you go to the Louvre and not see the Mona Lisa? You know, it's what it's, it's what the Louvre is maybe most known for, besides being a former palace. But I think for me, in terms of just art in general, like I am a big, big fan of Impressionist paintings. So the Musée d'Orsay is I'm in awe everywhere I go in there. But that's just because that's the type of art I like. If you're someone who's really into Italian Renaissance art and you're a big Leonardo da Vinci fan, then you're going to find that to be the most impressive thing, not just because it's the real deal in front of you, but because you like the painting itself. For me, it's just I know that it's famous, so I guess I appreciate it because I know I'm supposed to, but not necessarily because of what it is. You finish up the Louvre, you head out to the Tuileries Garden, which is... Right outside of the Louvre. Actually, I'm pretty sure you pass I.M. Pei's Glass Pyramid. Can you explain to someone what the Tuileries Garden is if they have had never been there before? Yeah, so the Tuileries Gardens, as you just said it, they are right outside of the Louvre. So it's all kind of on the same ground. <clears throat> Again, the Louvre used to be the royal palace. So before Versailles was built, the kings of France lived in the Louvre. So like any good palace, it needs its gardens. So the Tuileries Gardens face the Louvre, and it's almost like an extension of the museum because there's sculptures all throughout there. Another cool thing that they've added recently is there's been a carnival there too, like a permanent carnival. So you can do potato sack races. You can go on a couple little like carnival rides and Ferris wheels. They have a Ferris wheel there too. So that's kind of neat, but it's like an extension of the museum with the sculptures going through it. And it's, 
a nice kind of break when you're done with the museum and you need that fresh air. You can go walk through the gardens, see a couple other sculptures. And of course, like any good French park or garden, they have tons of chairs that are out and about for people to sit in and to relax and just catch their breath. Were there any special places in the garden that especially stood out to you? Or is this just a place where you would kind of escape the hustle and bustle of Paris and you can relax for a few minutes? I think the Tuileries Gardens are more just a quick place to relax when you're on your way somewhere else, just because of how it's located outside the Louvre. And it's located, you know, Paris has this great linear construction of Arc de Triomphe to the Champs-Élysées to the Place de la Concorde, which is where the guillotine used to be, to the Tuileries Gardens, to the Louvre. They're all in a straight line. So I think it's a good place to stop and catch your breath if you're on the move. If you're looking to really take a break from the hustle and bustle of Paris and you want to go to like what I call the Central Park of Paris, you would go to the Luxembourg Gardens. The Luxembourg Gardens are one of my favorite places to do nothing in. It's also where you can find the replica of, well, the original model for the Statue of Liberty. And that's a great place to like grab lunch, have like a little picnic, eat your sandwich outside. They have little like boats that you can rent. Like that's more of the, I'm going to escape the hustle and bustle park. To me, the Tuileries Gardens are just a little stop along the way. You mentioned everything is in a straight line. It looks like you followed that straight line straight to the Arc de Triomphe. But before that, you walk along the Champs-Élysées. Do you want to explain how that is supposed to be the most beautiful road in all of France? And is it worth walking the entire road? to the Arc de Triomphe? I definitely think it's worth walking it. It is not worth stopping anywhere on it. So for those that don't know, the Champs-Élysées is the Avenue de Champs-Élysées. It's the main avenue that goes, it connects the Arc de Triomphe all the way to the Louvre. And it's where, if you've ever seen the televised Bastille Day Parade, their military parade, it goes down the Champs-Élysées. It's a beautiful street, but... Let me tell you, don't stop there. It's changed a bit over the years, but it's primarily your luxury stores. So that's where you'll see your Chanel, your Louis Vuitton, your Louis Vuitton. Really expensive hotels are going to be there. It's the equivalent of like Fifth Avenue in New York City. So it's great to walk down. More and more, there's some more approachable or affordable places that have popped up along the way, but it's still going to be very, very pricey. I made the mistake once of stopping at a cafe on the Champs-Élysées to have a uh, cup of hot chocolate, and it was the most expensive hot chocolate I have ever had in my life, and there wasn't anything special about it. There was, like, no gold leaf in it, no truffle, nothing <laughs> nothing fancy, and it was the most expensive hot chocolate ever. So I guess I could say I did it, but I would never do that again. How much was this hot chocolate you speak of? From what I recall, this hot chocolate was 12 euros, and <laughs> much like if you been to any other European country when you order a coffee, a cafe, like you get a little tiny, like almost like espresso sized mug. It's not like a giant, you know, venti from Starbucks. So 12 euros. And this was during the recession. So the exchange rate was through the roof. I, I think it ended up being the equivalent of like almost a $20 hot chocolate. Um, so not worth it. But I learned my lesson. I will never stop along a Champs-Élysées. But in the winter, I must say, in the winter, right around the holidays, they do these little Christmas markets, and they have all these really cute little chalets that go all up and down the Champs-Élysées, and that's where you could get, like, a hot chocolate or one of my favorite vin chou hot wine, 
And those are much more affordable because it's all part of like the Christmas market. And, and those are great. But otherwise, just take it in and keep moving. That concludes part one of France. For part two, we will be exploring the rest of Paris. So if you are interested in visiting Paris in the near future or want to reminisce on some of your trips to Paris, make sure that you tune in next week for that episode. If you're interested in some more experiences regarding France, you can find many options on Airbnb. Some of those options available are French Revolution Interactive Journey, One Day in Paris with a Parisian, and also the art of a mime with a Parisian master. These are all things that Paris is known for, and you can have a wonderful time exploring these options about Paris while staying safe and learning something new. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspire Beyond Borders. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IBBpod for updates and pictures from our guests. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button on our podcast. Thank you.